Let's pray together. Lord, it's always good, always good, to sing your praise. The songs that we sang this morning reminded us of the greatness of our salvation. How good it is of you, Lord, to love us, to call us to yourself, to quicken our hearts, to show us our need for a Savior, to call us into a family. We thank you today for the West Hills family. We're just a tiny, tiny microcosm of your glorious church. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're building your church. Remember, tribe, every nation, every tongue, even through shoeboxes that will travel the world in the coming weeks, that the gospel will go forth into the lives and hearts and minds of young children. We thank you for that. And Lord, when we gather together, we're always aware that there are those present who are grieving and carrying heavy burdens and loads and so we would ask you to give an extra measure of your grace. Help us as brothers and sisters to be sensitive and tender and caring on Sunday mornings to those who need a prayer, a word of encouragement, a hug. And then, Lord, you've also said that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we, we would do that as well. We're all in different places in life, Lord. We thank you that you know the details of our lives better than anyone else. And so, Lord, today we would pray for little Nathan. We pray for Katie and Barrett, that you would give them your peace and your comfort, that you would be Nathan's life and Nathan's strength in his very fragile state. We love you, and we're only able to say that because you first loved us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So there are a lot of things in life that matter a whole lot, and there are a lot of things in life that really don't matter at all, right? Don't you agree with that? Now the mistake that we often make in life is taking things that don't matter all that much and giving them an elevated significance and taking things that matter tremendously and treating them as if they are unimportant. Wouldn't you agree? We get this thing all reversed, totally reversed. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest dam damaging effects of the fall is that we totally reverse the importance of things in life. We get it all messed up. Now in our study of 1 Peter, and here at West Hills right now we're studying through 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle, <clears throat> we're in that part of the letter where Peter begins to tell the believers to whom he was writing very simply and very clearly, it matters a great deal how you live. It matters tremendously how you live. Therefore, do not treat it casually. 
He was writing to believers. He was writing to Christians, people who believed in Jesus, people who loved Jesus, people who, who knew that they had an inheritance waiting for them when they would get to heaven, people who knew they were being guarded by God, people who had been born again, given spiritual life. And so he first wrote in the first few verses to remind them of who they, who they were in Christ, who they are in Christ. And then secondly, he's going to write to them to tell them how they should live. And pretty much the rest of the epistle is that. How should we then live as the people of God? He made the transition in verse 13. This is who you are to this is how you are to live. And it matters how you live. Not in terms of winning God's favor, but because God has already shown you his favor. The statement I gave you last week was, God says to you, I don't want you to live to win my love. I want you to live in my love. It matters how you live. Now, last week we looked at the call to holiness. Verses 15 and 16 in chapter 1. He who called you is holy, therefore be holy. Holy doesn't mean sinless. It means set apart. It means set apart unto God. Set apart from the world unto God. Live as people who have been set apart by God who is very much apart from that which he has created. Now this morning in verses 17 to 21, Peter's going to continue to tell them that it matters how you live. So let's stand for the reading of God's word to honor God's word. And if you call on him as father, read with me. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In those verses, I don't know if you notice, there's only one command. We'll be getting to that command a little bit later on, where he basically simply, he simply says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. But he wraps that one command with a whole bunch of, bunch of statements that are all really important and that matter a great deal. We're looking at things that matter this morning, as we do every Sunday when we open God's Word. And I will just tell you ahead of time, we'll be dealing with some things this morning that will take us into deeper waters than maybe you normally would swim. Don't be afraid to go there. Don't always stay in the shallows. 
don't always pamper yourself with treating yourself to those teachings that are easy for you to grasp and comfortable for you to embrace. Rather, be willing to consider the teachings of God's Word that cause you to wrestle just a bit and might even make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But that is where your faith will grow stronger and deeper. When you look at your outline, you're probably a little bit overwhelmed. I probably would be too if I were you. Trust me, we can do this. But I will say that because of the nature of what we're covering in these verses, I'll be spending more time on the first two points. Not because the others are inferior or of lesser importance, but because the first two deal with elements of our faith that we tend not to talk about all that much. And therefore, I believe they need more attention. Peter wraps the one command with several truths that we need to wrestle with. Number one, he tells us about God's judgment. And he says that God's judgment is absolutely equitable. Verse 17, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... You could also read, since you call on him as father, and you should call on him as father. That's a privilege given to the people of God, the children of God. Paul wrote to the Galatians, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you call on him as father, who judges? And so to judge is to assess the evidence in order to arrive at a verdict. That's what a judge does. I have a brother-in-law who served as a judge up in Michigan, Battle Creek, for about 30 years. He heard and presided over thousands of cases where he had to essentially help arrive at a verdict, sometimes on his own and sometimes through the jury. Human judges judge, albeit imperfectly, but nevertheless, that is the framework in which we know the idea of someone being a judge. This is what God does with absolute perfection. God's role as judge is a part of who God is that we tend not to make that much of that often. We love to talk about God creating and blessing and cleansing and forgiving and redeeming and providing and protecting and loving and saving and teaching and exhorting and encouraging and comforting. But we don't go very often to the idea of God judging. Now, I will tell you, this could occupy a whole message. It could occupy a whole series of messages. But I really want to try to give you a brief summary this morning at the front end of what the Bible teaches about God's judgment. And friends, I will simply tell you, this matters. If you're a follower of Jesus, this matters. So let me give you some summary statements about the judgment of God. First of all, God's judgment, just to reiterate the first point, the first major point, God's judgment is just. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, verse 17, Genesis 18:25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? See, the judge of all the earth does what is just equitable, unbiased. He doesn't show favoritism because of someone's high standing in society or because someone is wealthy or powerful or even religious. 
Nor does he use different standards to judge different people. He uses one standard. God's judgment is just, therefore you can trust God's judgment. Number two, while it is God the Father's judgment, he has given the authority to carry it out to Christ the Son. The Father has given authority to judge to the Son. Up on the screen, John chapter 5. <clears throat> For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, Jesus Christ, authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Number three, all people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How many of you ever stood before a judge in a court of law? How many of you are brave enough to raise your hands? Yeah, a fair number. I had to stand before a judge in a court of law with my youngest son, who's now a pastor. God is good. And it's kind of scary standing before a judge in a court of law. Even if you've never stood before a judge, even if you never have to stand before a judge in this life, you will in the next. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to a church, saints, the church in Corinth, and he writes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we means believers and unbelievers. All means all, everyone. And so every person will give an account of their life to God. Number four, this judgment will occur, obviously, after we die. It doesn't occur in this life. It occurs after you die. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed, solicited, summoned. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. It's appointed. You can't get out of get out. You can't be a no-show. Number five, those who are in Christ will not be judged for their sins, for Christ has already borne that judgment on your behalf. Praise God. You will not be judged for your sins. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. Those who are in Christ will not be judged for their sins. You say, well, Pastor Gary, it sounds like, I mean, that first verse there in verse 17, the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
I don't know, it kind of sounds like a person is going to be saved by their works and their deeds. Yes, if you take it out of context. If you ignore what he told us in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, yes. If you take verses about judgment out of context, yes, you will come to that conclusion. But if you keep them in their context, you will realize that your sins have been taken care of. That's why Christ died. When he died, he was judged. He took the judgment for your sins upon himself. Now, for the person who has not trusted in Christ, for the person who has not trusted Christ's atoning work on the cross, for the person who has not been clothed in Christ's righteousness to cover your nakedness before a holy God, all of their good deeds will only serve to condemn them. All of their good deeds, will, the Bible says, will be as, as filthy rags. Can you imagine being naked and covering yourself with a few strips of filthy rag? All of their good deeds will serve as filthy rags, worthless. Why? Say, why is that? Because they trusted in something other than Jesus. They trusted in, their, they trusted in how good of a life they lived. They trusted in, in their religion. They trusted in their heritage. They trusted in being an American. They trusted in being a conservative. They trusted in their, in their, in their philanthropic acts. They trusted in themselves. You see, this is the reason why we don't like to think and talk about judgment is because in our frame of thinking, we think, well, but what about those people? They're so good. A number of years ago, there was a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who came out with a book titled Love Wins. I'm convinced it, because he, it was because he could not deal with the judgment of God. Several years ago, I had a conversation with a relative of mine. Unfortunately, I will tell you that he was a pastor and a missionary for a number of years. And he said to me in the conversation, Gary, I assume that you've arrived at the same place I have. I said, what's that, uncle? He said that we're all climbing the same mountain. Christians are climbing this side, and Muslims are climbing this side, and agnostics and atheists are climbing this side, but we're all climbing the same mountain and one day we will all arrive at the top of the mountain. And I said with grief in my heart, then why did Jesus die? And I left that conversation and I wept because I thought, my goodness, how can you preach and serve as a missionary for 40 years and miss the gospel? For the person who has not trusted in Christ, my friends, there is only condemnation. That's why we tell them. That's why we send shoeboxes. That's why you open your mouth when you have an opportunity. That's why you love your neighbor. That's why you make what matters matter. Because people's lives are hanging in the balance. 
And then you say, well then, Gary, what is the purpose of my deeds? Peter says, the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Number six, in the judgment, while your deeds do not save you, your deeds will confirm that you are saved. Your deeds will serve as evidence, proof, fruit. They will serve as a visible confirmation of your invisible faith. They will serve as the smoke coming out of the chimney to prove that there is a fire burning in the fireplace of your heart. Because James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is a dead faith. And so your deeds will serve as evidence of a new heart, that you're a new creation. Your, your deeds serve as evidence of new life in Christ. Your deeds are the fruit. This time of the year up in northern Michigan, the apple orchards, the branches are heavy, heavy with fruit. But here's the deal. The fruit does not make a tree good. The fruit simply shows that the tree is good. It's not the fruit that makes the tree good. It's the fruit that gives evidence that the tree is good. The tree is living. And the same is true for the people of God. Bearing the fruit of righteousness, Paul writes in Philippians. It is the fruit of the Spirit of God who lives within you that comes out through your life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, acts of kindness, a life of goodness, a life of faithfulness, a life of gentleness, a life of self-control. That's the fruit, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And then number seven, your deeds done in service to Christ will receive his reward. Your deeds done in service to Christ will receive his reward. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing, no, we're going to see that word knowing in a few minutes back in 1 Peter. It's an important word. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. <clears throat> so your deeds will receive Christ's reward. The Lord, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now friends, here's the crazy deal. <laughs> this is so amazing to me. God is so gracious that he will reward his people for good works which he drew up and formulated and then by his spirit works them out in your life. That makes no sense to me at all. Makes no sense to me at all. except for an illustration that I'll give you from years ago. This is when Jesse and his slightly older brother Josh were probably five and six, someplace back in there. And those of you parents, you know these, you, you get these, these uh, long shoelace, colored shoelace things with different colored beads, and you, you put the shoelace the, through the beads, and you can kind of make these long decorative things. <clears throat> and Jesse had his 
shoelace. Jesse, you probably don't remember this, but it's true. It actually happened. Uh, he had his shoelace, and he was really having trouble getting the shoelace to go into that little hole in the bead. And Josh was sitting next to him, and he reached over and took Jesse's hands and held on to the bead and held on to the shoelace and pushed it through. He did the next one and the next one. And when he was all done, Josh turned to me and said, Hey, Dad, look what Jesse did. And I knew that if it hadn't been for Josh, And so, somehow, friends, Jesus is going to turn to the Father and say, Father, look what they did. And those of us who stand before the judgment are going to know, oh, Father, if it wasn't for your Spirit, if it hadn't been for your Son, I would, I would have no beads at all on my shoelace. How gracious of God. You catch a glimpse of this final reward in the book of Revelation. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And again, friends, this is Revelation's giving you a little glimpse, a little picture. It's like, it's like God pulls back the curtain just briefly and says, take a look. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever, and the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Wow. The time has come for rewarding your servants, the saints, both small and great. So that was the sermon before the sermon, or that was the sermon within the sermon, okay? More could be said about God's judgment, but I think that gives you a pretty concise 15-minute package that you can spin out yourself. Again, be like the Berean Christians. Open your Bibles, study what God has to say to see if what I've told you is true, and also study to see if there's more that you need to know about the judgment of God so that it has an impact on your life. This is not a doctrine you should brush aside. Back to 1 Peter. The second thing that Peter tells us, a lack of fear before God is dishonorable. He says in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so your exile is your life. <clears throat> you are aliens, strangers, exiles here on earth. This is not your final home. We are exiles. He says live your life with fear all your days. You say, well, Gary, how can that be? The Bible says, don't be afraid. Fear not. Do not be frightened in anything. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. <clears throat> Jesus said, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so why does Peter tell us to conduct our lives with fear? Well, obviously, because there are different kinds of fear. 
First definition of fear, be, to be afraid of someone or something as likely to be dangerous or painful or threatening. Okay, you can probably think of things that would fit in that category. A young child should be a little fearful of dad or mom if they disobey because they might get a spanking. People are afraid of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis. You're afraid of being bitten by a copperhead or a rattlesnake. There is a, an appropriate fear of totally being afraid, even terrified, of someone or something. Danger. But then there's a second definition, to regard with reverence and awe, to revere, to highly honor, to esteem. This is what Peter is calling for from believers, to reverence God. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, then you should be a man or a woman who conducts your life with a degree of deep, deep reverence for who God is. I would just suggest to you, we need to reserve the word awesome for God and his works. He who inspires awe. It is one of those words that we flippantly toss around to describe everything from I don't know, an amazing sandwich to cheesecake to your child scoring a goal in their soccer game. You were so awesome. No, they scored a goal. Did a good job. They should be commended. I just, I just, I just really think it's in just a small example of how we just sort of loosely use language, and I think we should be more careful with our language. I really do believe that the word awe belongs to God. Let me show you this in Psalm 8. I think we have those verses up on the screen. Psalm 8. And this is just one of so many scriptures that point to the awe of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? See, friends, the works of man are not awesome. The works of God are awesome. I mean, the works of man... To call the works of man awesome is like comparing a water feature in your backyard to Niagara Falls. Saying, boy, I did an awesome job, didn't I? Look at that thing. It's trickling at least, I don't know, two feet. Or putting those little sticky stars on your son's or daughter's ceiling. We did that once for our kids. And you turn off the lights and they glow at night. You say, wow, that's awesome. And then you go outdoors and stand underneath the Milky Way. No, that's awesome. A lack of fear before God dishonors God. See, the opposite of fearing God is snubbing God. The opposite of fearing God is, is living dismissively of God, disrespecting God, presuming upon God's kindness with a casualness in how you live. That was the cause of Judah's downfall. 
Jeremiah prophesied to God's people. Jer Jeremiah chapter 5, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season and the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. See, friends, that's what you end up doing to God when you do not fear the fact that He is God and you are not. And Peter says, this fear should govern your conduct. This fear should play a key role in how you live your days. Here's a powerful example of this in the Old Testament, coming from some women from whom you might not expect it to come. It's in Exodus chapter 1. You know the story, many of you. The Pharaoh has ordered for the, the, all the male babies to be slaughtered in Egypt, right? And the Egyptian midwives were to make sure that happened. They were to carry that deed out. It says, but the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And so there was a fear of God that superseded their fear of the Pharaoh. We could lose our lives for this. It governed their conduct. See, that's what we're getting at here. Live your lives with fear. Let it govern your conduct. They let the male children live because the midwives feared God. God blessed them. He gave them families. The third thing Peter tells us, what you have inherited is deplorable. I probably don't need to tell you that. As Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The feudal ways, feudal, paths of futility, paths of emptiness, fruitless, hollow, meaningless, worthless. Now maybe some of you inherited some godly blessings from some of your ancestors, but generally speaking, what we have inherited from our forefathers is not good. Judges 17.6, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jeremiah 25.3, the word that came to Jeremiah. This, I was reading this yesterday, and it jumped out at me as a pastor. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you for 23 years, but you have not listened. That's our forefathers. That's what we inherit from our forefathers. Romans 1.21, they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then Jeremiah 11 what we have inherited is deplorable, and so we needed to be delivered from what we inherited by God's mercy and grace. Number four, Peter says, the price for your ransom is unimaginable. 1819, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. 
Not with silver or gold. Silver or gold is like rotten bananas on the kitchen counter for, for expecting to be ransomed. You expect it to be ransomed with anything but the blood of Christ, which is precious? It says, knowing this, knowing the cost. Several times over the years, we've been given tickets to, say, a performance of the Fox or really, really good tickets at Bush Stadium, maybe, for a baseball game, or back when the Rams were at their prime, being given tickets to a Rams game. And we get the tickets, and we head down to downtown, and I look down at the tickets, and I realize, whoa, these things cost a lot of money. These are $150 seats. Have you ever thought about the price on the ticket for your ransom? See, it's like, it's like Peter is saying, you know you have a father who judges impartially, and you know you have a savior who has ransomed you abundantly, and the ransom was very, you know, the, you know these two, you know your father over here who judges, you know, your, you know Jesus over here who ransomed you. How should you then conduct yourself? You should conduct yourself with fear. Christ gave his life. I'm so glad, Scott, you chose. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot find an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His death has paid my ransom. Knowing this. Number five, Christ's preeminence is incomparable. Christ's preeminence, incomparable. 2021, talking about Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It was in God's plan to send the Son before Adam and Eve sinned. He was foreknown before the, the, the foundation was laid for the world, but was made manifest in the flesh. He took on flesh. The Word became flesh made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. There's a whole sermon there where Peter exalts the greatness of Christ. Christ foreknown, Christ manifested, he visited our planet, he became one of us, Christ crucified, he was slaughtered, Christ resurrected, he was raised. We have a conquering warrior, friends. Christ glorified. Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And lastly, number six, Peter says, he wraps it up by saying, just remember, your faith and your hope, they're in God. Your faith and hope aren't anyplace else. 
Your faith and hope have to be right here. Your faith and hope, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, are indispensable. Strengthen your faith. Lean into your hope. Don't place your faith in the things of the world. Don't put your faith in politics or presidents or public opinion. Don't put your hope in money or the stock market or good health. Put your hope in the Lord. These are things that matter. We've talked about things that matter this morning. God's judgment is equitable. Not fearing God is dishonorable. What you have inherited is deplorable. Christ's ransom is unimaginable. And his preeminence is incomparable. May we be men and women who walk accordingly, according to the truth of God's word. Let's pray. And so we give you thanks and praise, Lord God, for the truths which you have shared with us today from your word. We love your word because it points us to you. It reveals you to us in all your glory and majesty and splendor. What is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you would be mindful of us? You indeed are awesome in every way. I pray for myself that I would conduct my life accordingly. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would walk our days with great gratitude and praise and joy and also with great reverence and obedience because you are worthy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our ransom. We honor you today with the bread and the cup. We give you thanks and praise. What a great, great Savior we have. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name for your glory.